In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today let the word go forth fool me once are you fired up i'm not a crook are you ready to go shame on shame on you it's abe lincoln's top hat hosted by ben kissel boom you can't get fooled again Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, excited to share with you an interview I did with Marianne Williamson. She is a self-help author. She is a spiritualist. She also ran for president. Do you remember that? What a different year it was. She has a new book, A Politics of Love, and I was refreshed to speak with Marianne. I thought she did a great job of being totally self-aware. Her ideas are not nearly as wacky as I think a lot of people wanted them to be or thought that they were. Uh, So I think it was a really refreshing, illuminating interview that maybe kind of breaks a few of the stereotypes out there about Miss Williamson, who I do believe has a good heart and uh, who wants to see this country heal. Obviously, we have a lot of division right now. There's a lot of anger, a lot of pain throughout this country. And I feel like she has a message that could help us out in these uh, in these darkish, darker times. Okay, everyone, enjoy this interview with Marianne Williamson. All right, right now we are honored to have with us presidential candidate and uh, multiple time author Mary Ann Williamson. Thank you so much for doing this show, Mary Ann. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. So you have a new book out right now called A Politics of Love. And I know you've been talking about politics of love for quite a while, obviously, in contrast to Donald Trump's politics of hate. How do you find that message resonating as you've been traveling all across the country now on your presidential run? I find it resonating very, very well because we're good people. I'm not saying that Americans are better than other people, but we're as good as anyone else. I think America is filled with dignified, decent people on the left and on the right. People who just want to live good lives, live in integrity, live with character. I think what's happened in this country, though, is that the conversation about what it means to be a good person, what it means to forgive, what it means to be just, what it means to be kind. I think that we talk about that enough in our individual lives. But we have stopped talking about it the way we need to in terms of whether or not the country is being good, whether or not public policy is good, whether or not public policy is just, whether or not public policy is 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 even democratic or humanitarian. So I think that a dimension 
of personhood, which is citizenship, actually. People are awakening to the fact that we need to be participants in the larger conversation of what happens in the country. We have allowed politics to be a spectator sport. We've just kind of farmed out our conscience on issues of national behavior. And I think that there is very much a listening that I find because people know this to be true. We're not stupid people. And we've been played. We've been fooled over the last few decades. But I think for a lot of people, there's a realization that we, to some extent, allowed this to happen. And I think there's a real quick awakening going on. And I'm glad to be harnessing that awakening as part of my campaign. Absolutely. So would you say that was your main motivation for running uh, for president? Because obviously coming from uh, the field of of, uh, of writing, being an author, being a lecturer, um, being a spiritual guru in some ways, would you say that you're filling a void Filling a vacuum that has yet to be filled in American politics, which is really a politician who is not just fighting for policy, but truly fighting for the soul of a country. Well, I don't think so much that I am filling a vacuum so much as I am more like a tuning fork. A per- mm. One personality is like a tuning fork. But if the if the if the music wasn't already there, there wouldn't be anything to tune. Right. So there has been a vacuum in the political system, but not a vacuum at all in the country. The country's we're good people. We're good people. So I'm just harnessing something that's already there. This isn't just about me. This is about the fact that I'm saying what everybody I know is saying. I'm just saying it when the microphone is on. Why do you think there is such a disconnect between – because you're right. At the end of the day, people, uh, they love their families. They love their friends. Uh, I think that they think uh, they are good people. Uh, even you know someone who might support Donald Trump despite the fact his rhetoric is – is now just heating up to uh, parody George Wallace, uh, the former governor of uh, of Alabama. It's George Wallace-esque rhetoric at this point. Where do you think the disconnect lies then from people being like, I care for my family, I care for my friends, but then when it comes to politics, they still like to point to others as the problem. In this case, immigrants. Immigrants have been uh, in the crosshairs of this uh, uh, president uh, ever since July 2015 when he rolled down that escalator and called Mexicans rapists and and thieves and, and everything else under the sun. Why do you think that disconnect occurs from someone being good, but then also allowing themselves to um, really cater uh, or allow themselves to be catered to by someone like Donald Trump? Well, the problem is moral, but the cause of the problem is economic. Mm. Back in the 1980s, when trickle-down economics sort of corrupt, began to corrupt our government and right. hijacked our value system, we bought in as a culture and we bought in politically as well as socially to the idea that all that the American government uh, was responsible for was supporting corporations in increasing their stockholder value. Right. That somehow, if that stockholder value was increased, it would trickle down to everyone else and it would lift all boats. Obviously, it does not lift at all boats. It's right. like millions and millions of people without a life vest. Anytime you see large groups of desperate people, large groups of people living in survival mode, there is a level of, of societal dysfunction which is almost inevitable. Mm. It gave rise to Hitler. 
Uh, it, has, it gave rise uh, to, uh, to uh, terrorism in different parts of the world. It gave rise to the desperate um, uh, efforts to walk across the desert in order to leave uh, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Guatemala, where conditions of, of violence and horror made it difficult for people to even live any longer. Right. And I think it contributed as well to the, the confusion among so many Americans who became just desperate to do whatever might be possible to unrig that system. Yes. And that trickle-down economic system, uh, economic uh, um, philosophy did, in fact, lead to the rigging of the system. Right. Because it led us to a situation where our government does more now to advocate for short-term profits for huge corporations than it does to advocate for us. And yes. that, the, 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 the disconnection from moral principle then arose from the fact that it was so connected to short-term economic principle at the expense of our humanitarian values. Right. And it just all literally went to hell from there. So you mentioned the word rigging, and uh, that reminds me of what happened in 2016 regarding how the Russians uh, played the American people and preyed upon our fractured culture. I know at a um, – so number one, what would you do to confront – uh, Putin and Russia, because at this point it seems as if, it, as if Donald Trump is is uh, just hell bent on buddying up uh, to the Kremlin. How would you address the issue of cyber intervention in U.S. elections, specifically in regards to Russia? Well, first thing I would make it clear to the American people, and I would make it clear to the world that I believe the U.S. intelligence agencies on this issue. Uh, there is a unanimous agreement there that the Russians both uh, messed with us last time and are messing with us again. Yeah. And that carries a lot of force right there. And I would give uh, my full support of the executive branch. branch uh, two ideas proffered me uh, that I agreed with by the uh, intelligence agencies for way to, ways to deal with this, including cybersecurity, of course. In addition to that, I would meet with the people who both founded and uh, operate our tech agencies, such as uh, Facebook, to find out not only what they know, what they plan to do, because right. they clearly they clearly failed us. We know that they failed us, and uh, we need them to not fail us going forward. And they need to hear from the President of the United States that we expect it to be very different this time. And right. most importantly, I will have a very serious conversation with the American people. And that is that the American people hold the power. The American people are the only real wall of defense. And that's that each and every one of us have to think long and hard about what we're reading. Right. We have to to realize you cannot know who wrote it. You know, I'm going through something right now, which is uh, had me thinking this morning. Uh, the, the word is out on the street with all of this stuff that I'm anti-science and anti-vax. Right. Now, there's just nothing. I've, first of all, there's nothing I've ever said or written that would indicate I'm anti-science. And even on the vax issue, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm pro larger conversations within the society about a lot of things, including the independent, uh, independent nature of scientific research. Mm -hmm. But this, this unbelievable wave of she's anti-vax, she's anti-science, she's anti-vax, she's anti-science. Right. I thought to myself, what is, what is behind this? And some things are just memes that get started, and other things are, are deliberate. And they are pushed by sources. Now, sometimes we can't know, are those things pushed by sources within this country, or are, those th are these things pushed by sources outside? Right. Either way, it is the intelligence of the American people that is the only real defense against propagandistic 
obstruction yes. to the real free exercise of our democracy. Everybody just has to have some healthy skepticism about everything you read. Absolutely. And especially on the Internet. You know, on one hand, it's 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 good for democracy on one hand that the social media allows for a greater array of voices. That part is true, that yes. we don't have the kind of old-fashioned gatekeepers we used to have, particularly since, given the, the corporate ownership of so much of those gatekeepers, we, they themselves too often cannot be deeply trusted. But on the other hand, even the most crazy voices can, get, can, have, can have the same look of the same seriousness right. and meaning uh, of uh, outlook as does responsible journalism. So really it comes down to American, the American people. Being yeah. exercising our actual intelligence and, and knowing that you have to hear things straight from the candidate, you have to read your most responsible news sources, and truly, truly, when it comes to politics, not believe everything you hear. Well, I want to hit on what you were talking about regarding the intelligence of the American people and uh, hit on education here in one second. But just going back briefly, when it comes to the uh, lie campaign, let's just call it a lie campaign. It's not a schmear campaign. It's a lie campaign. Because you're not anti-vax, you're not not anti-science. Who do you think is really propagating this? Do you think this is something coming from other opponents, or do you think this is something coming from mainstream establishment? Obviously, we watched. You have qualified for the second debate, which will be on CNN. I believe the 30th or the 31st of July, um, depending on which night you get drawn into. But the MSNBC debate, it did seem as if you and Andrew Yang, who I've also spoken with, it seemed as if they were sort of stifling your speech a little bit, not letting you get out uh, what you wanted to say. Where do you think these attacks are coming from? Do you think they're coming from mainstream media outlets or or uh, is it is it oppo- uh, opposition uh, research or what do you think? Well, first of all, some of that you can't even know. And second of all, some of it is just the exercise of democracy. I mean, people get to have their opinion, and I think some people sincerely think I'm some wacko. And, you know, there is a term, um, contempt prior to investigation. Mm. I've always felt that when people actually hear me talk, go to my lectures, uh, read my books, I might not be their cup of tea, but I don't think people leave my talks or or read my books and think I'm some nut lady, you know, right. uh, who of of less than uh, you know decent intelligence. But there is this way in our society today that people make prejudgments, and so a lot of it just has to do with personal projection. And I yes, I think there's a misogynistic element. Mm-hmm. People have their prejudgments about someone who, uh, for instance, isn't part of the political establishment, running for president, how dare she, right. uh, and, and all of that. So some of it is just people get to think what they want to think. Right. On the other hand, we have you know what I call the political media industrial complex, which is where you get some obvious you know, some media shutouts that I've had. On the other hand, something I've also learned from this process is that the media is not a monolith. There are a lot of responsible journalists in this country, too. Right. And, I, and I have found that a lot of journalists uh, who I have wished had me on earlier, uh, at least when they do have me on, uh, are more than willing uh, to be pleasantly surprised when I don't fit their 
prejudgmental stereotypes of someone who's just speaking from a cloud or something. Absolutely. So I'm not a victim here, uh, and I'm not, and, and I'm not, I don't want to play it like I am or sound like I am. Uh, this is not like there's some big conspiracy. It's it's a it's a conspiratorial aspect of everyone's mind. We all do mm. it. We we all have an ego mind. We all have a judgmental mind. Right. And that same kind of judgmentalism plays out collectively as plays out individually. But once again. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter if it comes from the United States. It doesn't come matter if it comes from Russia. It doesn't matter if it comes from um, from in- individuals on a certain level, because what matters deeply is that when people are awake and people are thinking and people are bothering to educate themselves and people are really using their own critical thought processes, then we know BS when we hear it. And that's that's what matters. I mean, that's that's ultimately the the only safety is that the American people think for themselves. And when you think for yourself, you go, oh, I don't think that quite sounds right. Oh. That's the ultimate, the only answer to any of this. I know it's a scary answer, but I agree. That's really uh, our best hope. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash Pandora. Save 20% at TommyJohn.com slash Pandora. See site for details. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today so that really does play into education and obviously in this country we have fallen speaking of science math we have fallen so far behind in key areas of study a critical thinking as you were just talking about what do we need to do in your mind to just overhaul or if we have to overhaul just to change our education system it doesn't seem to be working too well from my perspective at this point well, we have 11 states in this country that do not even require um, half a year of civics, American history, or governance education, and that wow. is extremely dangerous. If, as a child, you don't learn what the Bill of Rights is, you don't know as an adult to be horrified when the Bill of Rights is under attack. So you have a lot of people, right. for instance, who in this country, who have become very clear what the Second Amendment is, but they don't seem so clear about the First Amendment. They understand about right. the right to bear arms, but they, they're not nearly as concerned about the, uh, the right of free speech and the, right, the freedom of the press and the yeah. freedom of religion and the, the right of assembly and the right of peaceful protest. I mean, we, we need everybody to be educated about what this whole thing is about. Right. And I think, I think the fact that the play uh, Hamilton has been so successful, to me that proves that people do want to know. Yeah. And, and they, they do care. 
And I, I feel right. that a very strong issue with all of this, as you saw in my CNN interview, is that there are far more decent, dignified, wonderful people in the United States than there are, you know, racists and bigots and homophobes and anti-Semites. The problem is that the racists and the bigots and the homophobes and the anti-Semites have become politically active over the last years, and they've become strategized yes. and strategic, and they, they receive at least indirect support uh, at least dog whistle support too often from n- nothing uh, less than the president of the United States. That is extremely, extremely dangerous. Absolutely. When hatred is shouting, it's not enough for love to whisper. And, and right. that's why I, I hope that people feel about my campaign that it's an act of, of shouting out love from the rooftops. And it's not mysterious. What, what does the politics of love do? It's, it's not mysterious. You see a hungry child, you feed them. You see a child who's not educated, you educate them. You see a poor person who's struggling, working as hard as they can, but they're trapped by their circumstances, you help them. Right. You see a world which is too close to conflict, and you know that there are ways to reduce that, you wage peace. You open your heart. You welcome the other. Love is fierce. Love is powerful. Love is wise. Love is not, you know, Martin Luther King said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and and anemic. We need both. Well, it sounds to me as if that was almost a foreign policy speech in some ways regarding immigration and what we have to do uh, in these countries, uh, you know, Ecuador, all of these countries where people are fleeing, uh, hence leading to the crisis on the southern border. Um, you would, I would assume you would, you would uh, try to, well, actually, I don't know. Would you, how would you try to curb the flow from, uh, people fleeing their countries that are in total disarray? Uh, how would you try to, to curb that? Would that be a financial solution or? Well, first of all, the, the issue should not be how to curb the flow, but how to respond to the flow. And some of, some of the response to the flow that we need at this time is to open our hearts to these people who are seeking asylum from countries where the horror and the violence is so great that they're willing to even walk across a desert with small children Mm. in order to find the possibility of peace. My own grandparents, uh, my own grandparents came here escaping pogroms in Russia and nobody was asking how to curb the flow. They they met a country here that was, was, was welcoming them and knowing that being open to the huddled masses yearning to breathe free was the whole point of this country. Now, when you talk about U.S. foreign policy in places like uh, Central America, this is the issue for Americans to understand. Mm -hmm. What we have been doing for the last 40 years, and this is why I said to you earlier that the moral consequences come from an economic cause. Mm -hmm. We have in both international as well as domestic policy over the last 40 years placed short-term profits for American corporate interests before advocacy for people and for democracy. And that has been as true in Latin America as it has been anywhere in the world. The Dalai Lama said to me that the people of the world do not see the United States as a champion of democracy. Now, that's what you and I were brought up to think we were. Right. When I was brought up, I thought when politicians said that we were standing up for America's vital interests around the world, I thought that's what they meant. Silly me. 
Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, huge oil companies, etc. Our government doing more to support oil companies being able to have contracts, uh, even at the expense of the rights of indigenous peoples and the land, the, right. the, the good of the land itself in places such as that. So there are ways definitely that we can address this with huge humanitarian support and also the bolstering of the kind of, of, of democratic institutions in such countries as that. It's not going to happen immediately. It can't happen immediately. This stuff is so thick with corruption, yeah. uh, pretty much in every every aspect. But I do, uh, in a Williamson presidency, commit that our entire foreign policy will be based and guided by the idea, and this will be domestic policy as well as international policy, that the point of governmental policy should be to support in whatever way possible the capacity of people to thrive. Because when people are thriving, that's when life harmonizes. That's when life works out. When people thrive, there Mm -hmm. is less war. When people thrive, there is more creativity. When people thrive, there is more productivity. When people thrive, there is less tension. This This is the evolutionary imperative. The economic imperative of the 21st century is the evolutionary imperative, and we should not be embarrassed to say that everything really would work out a whole lot better if we chose to love one another. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I suppose it's always very, it's a difficult uphill battle, uh, specifically in this um, time where it seems as if we are more divided. Would you say in your life experience, and obviously you've been fighting for love ever since 2000, well, I mean, I'm sure even before this, but uh, your first book, A Return to Love, uh, that was in 1992. So obviously you felt after the uh, the Reagan era, the George H.W. Bush years, that we were out of love, that we did not, that we have not uh, been embracing love enough as a country. This is why you got a little flack and some praise uh, at your most recent lecture slash uh, rally um, where you asked white people to apologize to black people. Do you think that we just still have so much healing to do as a country that we chose not to address? Maybe it was the 64, 65 uh, Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act, um, where it's sort of like this, hey, the government says we've moved on. But do you feel as if we as a people still need to to move on or do you think people are like over it and just like they want to move forward and how do you how do you sort of balance those two things between focusing on the the atrocities of the past and moving forward uh as a country of one people well when it comes to race it's like any other relationship if you have had a big fight with someone let's say your marriage is in trouble there are probably many things you need to talk about You might need to talk about infidelity. You might need to talk about disagreements about children. You might need to talk about somebody feeling they didn't get enough attention. You might need to talk about the finances. And when it comes to the area of race relations, it's similar. There are many different aspects. So, for instance, with the 1964 passage of the Civil Rights Act, Mm -hmm. it is true that we dismantled segregation. With the 13th and the 14th Amendments, we had already abolished slavery. With the 1965 Voting Rights Act, we gave equal voting rights to black people. However, even that, since 2013, the John Roberts-led Supreme Court has started chipping away 
at the Voting Rights Act, which is why we have all these voter suppression efforts now throughout the country. Right. The one piece that we simply have never addressed on a fundamental level has to do with economic restitution, or I should say the lack of economic restitution and the economic gap that, that both, which that both created and never ended. Right. So when you look at the economic gap, at the obvious economic gap, I mean, you have one group of people, four to five million people, who were enslaved persons right. until the end of the Civil War. So obviously they had no money. And then when the uh, 40 acres and a mule was promised uh, to every former slave family of four, most of the time that was not given. And even when it was given, most of the time it was taken away. Hmm. Now, that was then followed by a hundred years of further institutionalized uh, violence. And after that, we simply never, in a way, we never got around to it for many, many reasons. And so that gap has never been closed. And even in certain cases where <clears throat> there has been an effort at the accumulation of black wealth, there have been the efforts by state governments and local governments to thwart that. Right. In many ways, we're now moving backwards, sliding backwards with such things as mass incarceration and racial disparity and criminal sentencing. Now, I don't think from a historical perspective, we have to go into, oh, it's never been so bad. No, it's been this bad. We had the Civil War in this country. Right. So it's not, yeah. like, it's not like it's never been so terrible. What, what I think, though, is that we have never had a lack, and I think it's happening now, and I think my campaign is obviously part of this. It's not so much that we lack... Um, it's not so much that the problem is so big, it's that the response to the problem is not yet big enough. Right. And that's why I'm running. Because yes. we need to harness all the decency and the dignity and the love of people. A co what Martin Luther King called a coalition of conscience. The issue in life, whether you're an individual or a collective, often is not what happened to you. But who you are in the space of what happened to you? Who do you choose to be in response to what happened to you? Right. And that's what I feel is happening right now. Hate is, like I said before, hate is very loud right now. The issue is, are you, you <clears throat> with your love, going to whisper? Or are you, with your love, going to stand up tall and proud and do something? Yeah. Well, I have to say, it's so nice to hear a candidate that is positive um as a uh, is, uh, you know just someone who I, I just realized 1992 with um the return to love you know you were talking about you know the the politics of love the spirituality of love uh, meanwhile donald trump who's now president was was palling around with jeffrey epstein it just seems as if you are the polar opposite of donald trump and um, I mean, I'm sure I would. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You know, it just seems as if people now with the Epstein thing, obviously so disgusting, going all the way up to Alex Acosta, Donald Trump, all these political leaders. Do you think it's time for a fundamental change in leadership culture, in the culture of people who have power to say, you know what, just because we have power, we're not going to do these disgusting, predatory, um, uh, you know, just nasty 
things because, oh, we can. We can get away with it. Do we need a total transition of culture when it comes to the people in power? Yes, and my campaign represents that. I have said often that I'm not prosecuting a case against Donald Trump. I'm prosecuting a case against the system that produced him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because what you just said is right. This A lot of this very nefarious stuff was happening before Donald Trump even got here. And in that sense, he's a symptom. So um, the answer to your question is absolutely yes. We cannot have just incremental fixes and have that really repair this country on the ways that we need to repair. Um, yeah. If that's all we do, then even if we were able to white-knuckle it and beat Donald Trump somehow, then they, those forces would still be back in full force in 22 and in 24. And so we need that kind of fundamental change. Yeah. Now, when you mentioned before that I'm the exact opposite of Donald Trump, that is the point. Right. You know, and I, I've had reporters say that. <clears throat> well, I say you're just the opposite of Donald Trump. And I said, yeah, you might want to think about that. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump, Donald Trump is not just a politician. He's a phenomenon. And yes. you can't beat a, a he, he will not be beaten by an inside politics game. Right. Absolutely. He will be, be, the only way to beat a phenomenon is with another phenomenon. And the phenomenon that will beat Donald Trump is an uprising of consciousness among the American people. And speaking and inspiring and harnessing and articulating consciousness in a way that causes change within mainstream society is what I have done for 35 years. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I have to say, uh, this quote does sum, sum up what you've been saying perfectly. This is a quote actually from Robert Todd Carroll of the Skeptics Dic- Dictionary. This is what he writes about Marianne Williamson. He says, Williamson might be called Oprah's patron saint. She's all about love and healing, yin and yang, being wounded and using love and prayer to heal all wounds. And I have to say, um, we need healing now uh, more than any time I can remember in this country in my 38 years of life. So thank you so much for presenting that as an option for the American people and and just giving yourself up to this political process, which... I know can be a colossal pain in the butt and people will lie and and say what they want to say. Um, But uh, I just really appreciate you trying to be a little bit of light in this darkness. So thank you so much for being on the show, Marianne. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, honey. Much love to you. All right. There it was. Marianne Williamson coming in hot. I hope you all enjoy the interview. I hope that uh, you're enjoying these sort of isolated interviews that we've been putting out. And I hope you're enjoying Abe Lincoln's Top Hat as we are continuing to go down the road of 2020. What does it have in store for us? What, What else could happen? Well, we'll keep you updated because, believe it or not, Things will happen. Um, All right, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting us. We love you. Hail yourselves. Talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.